Come on, Gabby. Everybody knows that you're for the Mariners today. That was even cheesier than that, than yours. All right. Good morning, friends. How are you? You're surviving the snow and ice, making it through another foot tonight. Okay, so quick story here before we get into the message. I got two things for you. One fun, one more serious. Here's the fun one. Remember a while back when I talked about putting dog food down on my hill and you guys all made fun of me um, and then you made fun of me for a long time after. Uh, just on Friday, we had that big ice storm, right? Uh, up the hill from my house. A guy who lives up the hill, like the very top of the hill, decided he was going to go out in the ice. And so he backed out of his driveway in his brand new Tesla. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. As soon as he backs out of his driveway, he starts sliding sideways down the hill, hits a car that was parked on the street, jars that loose. The two of them start careening. They explode through two giant like brick mailboxes and crash into another woman's Jaguar. That all happened on my hill. It wouldn't have happened if they'd used dog food. So that's all I'm saying. That's the kind of excitement. And by the way, just so you know, all of a sudden now, you feel a lot better about your life, don't you? I didn't wreck my brand new Tesla. I don't even have a Tesla and I don't even care anymore, right? Hey, that's right. That's what we're here for, to make you feel better. Welcome to church. Um, Okay, that was the fun thing. Here's the more serious thing. Um, A a wonderful family in our church, the Grammer family, Bob Grammer, who's uh, been a member here for a long, long time, passed away early Friday morning. Um, uh, Bob has four kids, three of whom go to our church. Um, Diane, I think you're in here somewhere. Um, Janie, did you make it? Diane's back there. Janie, did you make it? And then Becky Hamilton, wife of our uh, beloved Pastor John, also um, is a daughter of, of Bob, along with their son David, who lives over in Bend. So I just really want, I wanted to pause this morning, and because this family is just such a near and dear family to us, I wanted to just thank the Lord for Bob and his life, and then also pray for you guys. So if you're sitting back there next to Diane, throw a hand on her and just give her some loving, if you would. And if the rest of you would join me in a word of prayer. God, first of all, we thank you for Bob, for his life, for the way he loved you and trusted you, for the kind of father that he was. Um, And I thank you, God, for the hope we have and the knowledge that he's with you and that he's free of all the struggles and difficulties and concerns of this world and this life. And so we rejoice in that. And we also ask for your comfort and peace for this family during a time where they're missing their father. So draw near to them. Uh, flood their minds and hearts with assurance and peace and joy and uh, and just bring them comfort. So, God, we want to surround them as a church family as well. So use even our family here just to surround their family. Um, we love you, Jesus. We thank you and pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, if you're new with us uh, or if you're just in need of a review, we are currently cruising through this uh, section in the Gospel of Luke where the tension and conflict Jesus is experiencing with the religious leaders is starting to boil over. Two weeks ago, we watched as Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a young colt. He was greeted as a king, and then immediately he proceeds to go right to the heart of the city, to the heart of the nation, to the very center of Jewish life, the temple, where he 
throws out the money changers. He drives them out. He cleanses the temple. And his message as he does this is extremely clear. Empty religion that takes advantage of the poor or the marginalized or the foreigner does not have any, does not in any way represent the heart of God or his kingdom that I have come to bring. And so, so Jesus in this, um, kind of ignites a lot of energy and controversy around himself. And the religious leaders who are already opposed to him, who've been opposed to him for many, many chapters throughout the Gospel of Luke, are now plotting to trap him and kill him. But does Jesus back off? No, he doesn't. Instead, he tells an indicting story about them, a story that Pastor Matt unpacked for us last week, a story about their hearts and their motives and about the destructive way in which they relate to God. And it's at this point, right after Jesus has, has attacked the religious leaders directly and personally, that we pick up the story, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor, of the government. You see, what Luke is telling us here is that the urgency of opposition is rising. You see, it's not just that the religious leaders don't like Jesus. They've never liked Jesus. Now he's getting personal. Now he's not just saying things they don't like. Now he's in their city saying things directly against them. And so in our passage today, in the episode that we're looking at this morning, these religious leaders will connive and scheme and plot to trap Jesus using one of the most sensitive and provocative subjects of their day. Politics. Politics is our subject today. And I know it's going to be a stretch this morning, but I really, really hope you can relate to a culture where there's political tension and strife and disagreement and where people struggle to reconcile their faith relationship with Christ and the politics around them, because I've entitled the message this morning, Learning to Follow Jesus in a Politically Charged Culture. Aren't you glad you came? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting to me, I was thinking about it this week. Even 2,000 years ago, across the ocean in a foreign land, the issue that was perhaps one of the most difficult to navigate was when Jesus mixes with politics. You see, Jesus and politics will always collide and every single time there will be tension, it is always an explosive issue. It was back then, it still is today. And so in this passage this morning, we have a lot to learn. We have a lot to hear about. And so I want to challenge you today to take a posture in your mind and heart that says, God, maybe I need to hear some things. Maybe you want to challenge some things. Maybe you want to change some things. Maybe you want to confirm some things. But I'm going to let you have your way in me instead of me asking to have my way in you. One thing that's interesting about the, the religious leaders in this story is that 
They get offended by Jesus. Why? Because he won't fit into their agenda. He refuses to conform to their ideologies and plans and purposes. He won't join them, and so they want to kill him. But in the the meantime, as they plot and they plan and they connive and they scheme, Luke tells us that they pretend to be sincere. You see, on the outside, they look sincere. They look authentic. They look like they really care. They say extremely flattering things about Jesus. We'll read them in just a moment. Jesus, you're such a great teacher. You're never partial. You just speak the word of God so honestly and and truthfully. We want to hear from you. We truly do want to conform our ideas and thoughts and, and lives into what you long for. See, on the outside, that's what they say. But on the inside, that's not the reality. On the inside, the reality is this. They want Jesus to conform to them. And friends, perhaps the people most guilty of this are religious people in our day. We say over and over again, God, 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 you have your way. Change me. But so often, we dig our heels in and we say, Jesus, you're going to have to come my way. You're going to have to agree with me. I can't agree with you. Verse 21. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And you, you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And right now you're thinking, really? I mean, after all the questions these guys have posed to Jesus, they think this is the thing that's finally going to trip him up. The thing they're ultimately going to bust Jesus on is taxes? I mean, they did get Capone on taxes, right? But I don't think they're going to get Jesus. Now, let me unpack this question for you because uh, this is truly a loaded question and it goes well beyond simply, should we pay our taxes or not? So often this passage is quoted, is used to just affirm that we as followers of Christ should pay our taxes. We don't like taxes. We don't want to pay our taxes, but we should pay our taxes because Jesus said so. And friends, I have to say, if you are here today and by the end of this message are walking out and thinking to yourself, well, I guess Jesus wants us to pay our taxes, you have missed the point. Because this question... This trap thrusts Jesus right into the center of the enormous and volatile political upheaval of his day. This question goes so far beyond taxes. You see, in the Roman Empire, there are all sorts of taxes. Taxes on goods, taxes on services, taxes on incomes, taxes on land. But there was also a very specific tax called the head tax. And the head tax was simply a tax paid once a year in order to pay for and state explicitly the privilege of being a subject of Caesar. You see, he paid this tax as a way of saying, thank you, Caesar, that I get to live under your rule and reign, that I get to be one of your subjects. This is a very controversial tax in Jesus' day. Extremely controversial. In fact, 25 years or so before this moment, before this time when Jesus is having this exchange with the religious leaders, right when this tax was instituted in Israel, there was an insurrection. Jesus was just a young boy at this time. He lived up in Nazareth with his family. 
But 25 years earlier, there was an insurrection, an armed revolt led by a man named Judas the Galilean. Judas, this revolutionary from Galilee. Know anyone else from Galilee? Yeah, Jesus. And here's what Judas the Galilean did. He did three things. First, he called on all Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. He said, don't pay it. We can't pay it. Refuse to pay it. That's what he did, first of all. Second, he went into Jerusalem with an armed group of rebels and he cleansed the temple. He drove out all the bad stuff, all the foreigners, all the, all the things that were um, unpleasing to God in his mind. And then the third thing that Judas the Galilean and his rebels did is they declared, we are here to bring the kingdom of God. We're here to shut down oppression and injustice and we're going to drive out the Romans because we are going to let God be our king, not Caesar. That's Judas the Galilean. You know what happened to Judas the Galilean? Yeah. The Romans hunted him down and executed him. It was a national tragedy. This rebellion was crushed with literally thousands of Jews crucified along the roadways in Galilee. And so now, 25 years later, here comes Jesus, proclaiming the kingdom of God, cleansing the temple, And the religious leaders are thinking to themselves, how can we get this guy in trouble? How can we get him killed? Ah, they think. Let's ask him what he thinks about the head tax. Do you see what they're asking him here? They're asking him, not just are you for taxes or not? Do you like paying taxes? Should we pay taxes? No, they're asking him, are you like Judas the Galilean? Are you a revolutionary? What's your political posture, Jesus, when it comes to Roman occupation? Tell us what you think about that. Friends, this is a brilliant move. This is the best, most strategic move the religious leaders have come up with against Jesus yet. This is what we call in chess, checkmate. Any chess players out there? I'm in the process of teaching my son to play chess. And it's just a really like fun, proud father moment for me. Just yesterday, or maybe it was two days ago, actually, two days ago, uh, on the ice storm day, the same day as the big crash, I found him downstairs in his room with one of his little friends from across the street. They were playing chess. He's a 10-year-old boy. This is a huge moment. Here's the thing that, about chess that's so unique. Unlike every other game, chess is a game where you're not just waiting for your opponent to make a mistake, to make a bad move with their king so that you can kill them. It's actually not how chess works at all. And the rules of chess prohibit your opponent from making a bad move so that you can kill their king. In fact, if they make a bad move with their king, leaving their king exposed or in danger in a place where you can kill him, you have to say, no, can't move there. That's check. If you move your pieces into a position where their king is in danger of being killed, you have to warn them, hey, just so you know, I can kill your king. Check. You need to fix it. You need to move them, right? You only win in chess when you have arranged your pieces such that your opponent cannot move their king anywhere where he is safe. In other words, no matter what you do, no matter where you move, no matter what you say, Jesus, you're going to lose. Your king's going down. Check, mate. And that's 
what the religious leaders believe. That's where the religious leaders believe they have Jesus. You see, if Jesus says, they say, pay the head tax or no, Jesus, what do you think? If Jesus says no, if he says, don't pay the head tax, the Romans are going to say what? He's another Judas the Galilean. And they'll come and they will crush him. They will annihilate him. They will rid themselves of him. But, but if Jesus says, yes, yes, do pay the tax, then all the people, all the crowds who love Jesus and have been hearing him talk about the kingdom of God will think that he's wimping out. They'll say, oh, I guess he just supports Rome. I guess he's not the Messiah after all. He's not the one we've been waiting for. He's just another collaborator. You see, either way, the Jesus problem goes away for the religious leaders. They win. So what does Jesus do? Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Jesus is in checkmate, and all of a sudden, he's not. The religious leaders think they have him, and once again, he slips through their fingers. But friends, he doesn't just slip through their fingers. In the process of doing so, in the process of answering this question, he also teaches us some things about how he and us as his followers should relate to politics, to political positions and agendas. Three things Jesus wants us to, wants to teach us about politics and political agendas today. One, Jesus rejects political simplicity. Two, Jesus removes political complacency. And finally, Jesus reminds us of our ultimate loyalty. Let's start with the first two. Because simplicity and complacency were both temptations for the people holding political views in Jesus' day, and I'll argue that they are temptations for evangelical Christians in America um, in our day as well. So let's go back. Let's go back to the, to the issue at hand, the head tax, just for a minute. I want to talk for a second about why the Jews hated the head tax so much. Why was this the specific tax that Judas the Galilean went after in his revolt and said, don't pay it? Because it was not the most expensive tax. Actually, compared to other taxes of the day that Rome levied on the people, the head tax was relatively cheap. It was only one denarius per year per subject. This is why, by the way, when Jesus is responding to the questions, we pay the tax, he responds by saying, show me a denarius. He says, well, let's, let's take a look at the coin that we actually use to pay this tax. In fact, in Matthew, in Matthew's version of this same story, Jesus says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. In other words, show me the coin that we use to pay this tax, the denarius, one denarius per person. A denarius, by the way, was worth about one uh, day laborer's wage. It was a fairly um, invaluable coin. But the Jews hated it. They hated this tax. Again, not because of the expense. They hated it because of what it represented. They hated it because of the statement you were making when you paid it. And that statement was this. My ultimate allegiance is to Caesar. That's what the head tax was all about. You saying, 
My ultimate allegiance is to you, Caesar. Thank you that I have the privilege of being one of your subjects. I am committed and loyal to you. In fact, even the coin itself made this statement. The denarius was a small silver coin about the size of our dime and stamped right on it. We know this because we found lots of these. They were everywhere. Um, We have them now in museums. Stamped right on the denarius was both a picture of Caesar himself and these words inscribed right on the coin. Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Son of God, in other words, friends. So right there, right on the coin, was a picture of the man who claimed to be their sovereign, their God, and a statement affirming that claim. Now, how did the Jews feel about graven images of people or things that pretended to be God? Were they for that or against that? They were massively against that. Why? It's in the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number two. Have no graven image. This is like at the very core, this goes against the very core of what it means to be a follower of God. This like challenged everything the Jews stood for. By the way, just as a side note, this is why there were money changers in the temple. You ever wonder that? What are these money changers doing? The reason they had money changers in the temple is because when you came into the temple to purchase something, to purchase a sacrifice, to pay a temple tax of any kind, you didn't dare bring one of these Roman image-bearing, idolatrous coins into that temple. And so what you did was you exchanged your Roman coins for Jewish coins so you could go into the temple and pay your taxes. The Jews loathed these coins. They hated them with every ounce of their being. You see, even the coin itself made a statement against what they believed. And so this tax, it strikes right at the heart of the most sensitive, controversial, political issue of Jesus' day. You think our issues are heated today? We've got nothing on this one. Roman oppression. The rule and reign of Rome over Israel. And this tax and this coin reminded them constantly, you are not free You're ruled. You're oppressed. There is a pagan power over you. And in response to this, there were a few different political perspectives. One political perspective that the Jews had was an attitude of submission and collaboration. This perspective said, you know what? Let's just follow the rules. Let's just, you know, be good little subjects of Rome. Let's, like, you know, just mind our P's and Q's. Let's just pay the taxes like they tell us and trust God to take care of it. That was one popular uh, Jewish political perspective. The other popular ideology or political perspective was kind of the opposite of that, and that perspective said, revolt. That perspective said, we can't stand for this. We should rise up, fight the power, and overthrow the government by force. Pay that tax? No way. In fact, in fact, instead of a tax, instead of a coin, I've got a knife for you, Romans. Now, when Jesus is cornered by these religious leaders with this question, these are the two options he's given, right? That's the question they're saying. Which political ideology do you agree with, Jesus? Which political ideology do you fit into and endorse? To pay or not to pay? That is the question. Submit or revolt? And how does Jesus answer? Actually, 
Jesus answers in a way that refuses to put him in either category. Actually, when you look at it closely, you'll see, and you'll see in a minute, that in a sense, Jesus says, should we pay or not pay? And Jesus says, both. You should pay and not pay. Or another commentator I read said, Jesus answers this way, should we pay or not pay? And Jesus says, neither. You shouldn't pay and you shouldn't not pay. Right? He says both and he says neither. How can he do this? What do you mean by that? Let me tell you exactly what Jesus says here. He says, you can't boil me down and put me in one political party or another. I'm not that simple. I have not come to fit into your worldly agendas. I have come to ask you to fit into mine. This answer is genius because they just want a yes or no. They just want a black or white. They want party A or party B. But Jesus resists political simplicity. He does not fit into our world's political structures. And I will argue today that neither should we. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what's God's, Jesus says. And this is what his answer is, essentially. Give Caesar the money, but not ultimate allegiance. What Jesus says in response to their question is this. You may give Caesar some of what he wants, which is his money, but you cannot give Caesar ultimately what he wants, which is to completely accept his system, his system of coercion and injustice and exclusion. He wants ultimate allegiance, but your allegiance can be for one and one only, the one in whose image you are made. Give him that coin, that idolatrous coin that has his image on it, But whose image is stamped on you? Give God your life. You can give Caesar his coins, but you better give God all your mind and heart and soul and strength. And this is how, friends, Jesus rejects political simplicity and at the same time removes the option of political complacency. You see, the beauty of what Jesus says here is that you can't adopt a mindset of spiritual simplicity. You can't say, I belong to this party, or this party, or this party. None of our worldly parties or ideologies truly represent God. You know, one thing I did this week is I went online, um, and I looked up all the major political parties in our nation. And if you do a Google search, you can do this yourself at home, you'll find this. Every political party in our nation quotes a ton of Bible Bible verses and then claims that Jesus is with them. <laughs> Jesus is with us. Right? And we can and here's all the reasons why. Here's our positions and here's what Jesus says. Jesus is with us. Now, how do all the political parties of our nation claim that Jesus is with them? Because I think Jesus would say, "I'm with none of you. Why don't you guys come and get on board with me?" See, that was the other main way that the people of Jesus' day dealt with political turmoil in their world. They removed themselves. So you had the submitters, you had the revolters, but then you had um, the pacifists, the one that just said, it's too complicated, it's too involved, this whole thing is a mess, we don't even want to be involved with it, we'll just step back and remove ourselves from the entire discussion. And then Jesus, in response to that group, says, not an option. Not an option if you are someone who follows me. His response does not leave that open to us. You see, hear it. On one hand, Jesus says this, toe the line and pay your taxes. Give Caesar his idolatrous coins. But on the other hand, he says this, 
You stand up, fight and oppose any and everything that does, that does not line up with allegiance to the one whose image you were created to bear. That's who your allegiance is, is to. That's who you fight for. That's what you defend, the cause of God. He says, you're right, it's not simple, it's complicated. As a follower of Jesus, you won't fit nice and neatly into the parties and categories the world offers you. But at the same time, you cannot, you must not become complacent. You must fight for the things of God because your life is in allegiance to Him. And so give Him all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. N.T. Wright, who's one of the... like. preeminent New Testament scholars of our day says Jesus does a masterful example of refusing to say don't pay the taxes but he also does not say just acquiesce to the system be nice tax paying people ignore the injustice and oppression around you no no not at all remember the original question remember the question that they're going to trap him with Jesus are you like Judas the Galilean are you like this revolutionary He cleansed the temple. He called for the kingdom of God. You've done both of those things. What do you say about the head tax, right? And how does Jesus respond? He says, I'm not. He says, I'm a revolutionary, but I'm not like Judas. He says, I don't want a political revolt, but I am here to lead a revolution. Just not the kind of revolution you've ever seen before. See, Jesus rejects political simplicity. He removes political complacency. And finally, he reminds us of our ultimate Loyalty. Do you know what's great about the gospel writers? They have, once you get to know them a little bit, it takes a while because first century humor is a little different than 21st century American humor. But they're funny. And they, they paint these pictures that are almost comical. They're certainly ironic. And what Luke does in this story is he paints this wonderfully ironic picture. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus has just been asked the question about the tax. What do you say about this tax, Jesus? This head tax. Are you like Judas the Galilean? Right? What does he say? He says, well, that's a good question. Um, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Now, when Jesus asks this question, what's inferred here? What do we discover all of a sudden about Jesus? He doesn't have a denarius. He's like, I'm looking for a prop, right? Like, if only I was prepared for this lecture, right? Kind of thing. It doesn't say, Jesus reached into his pocket and pulled out the most common coin of his day, the one that everyone had on them. No, he doesn't have one. He's looking for one in the crowd. Show me a denarius. Someone got a denarius, right? Jesus has no money. And so someone gives him one. They hand him this denarius, this denarius with with Caesar's image inscribed right on it. And now all of a sudden... This, this scene um, in which Jesus was the main and pretty much only main character now has two main characters. We've gone from Jesus being on stage alone to now all of a sudden Jesus being on stage with who? With Tiberius Caesar. And we get this beautiful chance to compare and contrast them. You see, they both say, I'm the son of God. They both say, I'm king. They both say, come on, pledge your allegiance to me. But in this moment, we get a chance to see how utterly different they are. You see, one guy, Tiberius, he has all the coins in the world. Literally, all the coins in the world have his picture on them, and he's 
all about trying to gather them back to himself. The other guy, the other king, Jesus, well, he doesn't even have a coin to his name. You see, this is a story about politics. But more than that, it's a story about which of these kings we serve. Whose agenda, whose world agenda, whose political agenda agenda we have bought into. Are we following the agenda of Jesus? Are we pursuing the political agenda of Caesar? You see, one of these kings will do whatever he can to leverage and leverage whatever political power he can muster to gain power and success and comfort and recognition. The other one lays them down willingly. And friends, those four values all throughout the New Testament are the dividing line between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. You see, if you're in the kingdoms of this world, if you're pursuing an earthly kingdom, an earthly agenda, if you've pledged your allegiance to an empire of this world, if you're playing Caesar's game, these are the things that you are pursuing. In fact, you have to have them. You have to protect them. You have to live for them. You're desperate for them. Most, if not all, of your life's decisions are made on the basis of getting them. I spend most of my time trying to figure out how I can get more power, more success, a little more comfort in my life, a few more Netflix shows, and some recognition for how good my sermon is would be great as well. You see, it's getting personal now. The way Jesus always does. Furthermore, I'd add this. In the kingdoms of this world, you also do one more thing. You judge others, sometimes explicitly, sometimes self-consciously, You assign other people value on the basis of whether or not they have these qualities. Who really matters in our world, right? Well, people with power and success and a lot of comfort and recognition. They're the valuable ones. You see, in the kingdoms of this world, revolution is just a battle for these things. Judas the Galilean, he was a revolutionary. He led a revolution, a revolt, and his revolt and revolution were all about this. There are some people, and they've got the power, and they've got the success, and they've got the comfort, and they're getting all the recognition, and we've got to get it back from them. They have a lot, we have a little, we want more, we need them to have less. Every single kingdom in this world is after protecting and gaining more of those at the expense of someone else who will have to lose them. You see, worldly kingdoms engage in revolutions and revolts all the time, but all they ever do is rearrange the furniture. One group rises, one group falls. Jesus comes and says, I'm here to lead a different kind of revolution. Jesus comes and he says, sure, If you're going to gain power and success and comfort and recognition, someone's going to have to lose it. Guess who Jesus says will lose it in his kingdom? He will. He will. He's the king who was crucified. He's the king who was beaten beyond recognition. He's the king who suffered. He's the king who had no coins minted in his day. 
You see, Jesus gave up all the power and success and comfort and recognition of heaven. Of being seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He gave it all up. Why? So that we could have the power and success and comfort and recognition that we need. Those things from God. You see, here's the difference. Here's, and here's where it starts to get practical. If you are a Christ follower, it should change your life outlook. It should change your political outlook radically. Because most political agendas are about how can I, how can we get more of that? But Christians, they come to the world and they say, God has given me all of that in spades. I've got all I need. And my goal now is not to take from others to get more from me. My goal now is to share the abundance of those things that I've received from God with the world. Do you see how radically different we have to be as Christians if we really understand who our God is and all he's done for us? And friends, I'll argue that that even includes politically. A lot of debate, a lot of conversation these days. Not simple. It's not a simple debate. And Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) But maybe the conversation is wrong if you're a Christ follower. Right? Right? Maybe the conversation isn't about how do we keep or protect or get more of that, but how do we share it? You see, Jesus is a radical, and he makes me real uncomfortable. And I was never taught this in church growing up. Because I read this passage this week, and I reflected on our world these days, and the tension that I, and I'm assuming all of us, have felt in this political season. I, I couldn't back down and just say, You want God in your life and it'll be all great. Because I think Jesus wants to change us in a deeper, more significant way than that. He wants us to go out into this world and be noticeably different, to be a light, to be people that offer his love and grace and hope and success to the world in ways that other people just won't and other kingdoms just can't. So this morning... As we move to the table, as we move to celebrate this meal, as we move to celebrate and declare together, the reason I have hope and life and joy and success and power and the reason I don't need to go out and steal all these things from others is because I have a God who gave his life for me, who laid it all down so that I could have. Maybe today the question for you is, how does that change my thinking How does that change my life agenda, my political agenda? And is there something on that list that I've been trying to hoard or grab or take or steal from other people in my life or maybe even other people around the world? And God might just want to set you free from that today and say, I've got plenty for you. Come join me in giving it away. I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the band back up. Take a few minutes. Ponder those questions. If you could maybe click back to the next, the last slide. I want those up there a little bit. And when you're ready, come to the table. And remember that you have a king that gave it all up for you. Father, thank you that you offer us something so much different than the world. That you're not just another worldly, earthly kingdom vying for power and control and success. But God, that you have it all. Thank you for that. Thank you for offering it to us. Thank you for paying the price to give it to us.
I pray, God, that it would radically change us as people, as families, as a church, even, God, that you would even change our nation and our world. And that we can be a part of that. We want to be a part of it with you. Help us, God. We need you and we love you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.